welcome to Dark Gate Horror Podcast episode number 16, which will discuss the portrayal of death in film as well as the use of omens and premonitions as a plot device in the horror film Final Destination, the thriller film Premonition, the US version, and the thriller film Stir of Echoes. I'll be discussing everything about these films, so this is a spoiler alert. Let's move on to some news. Halloween, 1408, and Disturbia are the only horror movies released so far this year that have grossed more than $50 million. Disturbia has grossed over $80 million, and 1408 has grossed over $71 million. 1408 was just released on DVD, and the unrated version has an alternate ending and some deleted scenes. I put it in my Netflix queue, and I'll let you know what I think. When I saw it a few months ago, I really liked it. Let's move on to the main discussion. Let's start with Death Omens. Humans have always had the desire to break from the constraints of time. No one truly knows what happens when a person dies, and the result is that humans harbor anxiety regarding death. Therefore, cultures all over the earth and throughout time have created death omens to help alleviate the anxiety from impending death. Omens may take many forms in the prediction of death, including dreaming about certain events. Freud explored dream analysis in great depth, perhaps in response to this question among others. Omens also appear through behavior and appearance of certain animals such as owls and ravens. Death omens not only predict that the death is approaching, but also provides knowledge of when and where it will happen. In European peasant societies, death omens were a call to action. They learned to interpret the signs to understand how they could help, and the method of help fell into three categories. One, communication rules defined how news of the omen should be disclosed. For example, nobody should talk about bad dreams before sunrise, and the news of bad omens should not be given to a dying person. Neighbors would step in to see that a dying person was taken care of should they lack family. Number two, the observer of the omen may attempt to prevent the death by magical rites such as prayers. And three, should the exact person be identified, the observer of the omen would help the person's family prepare for death. The main purpose of the system of behavior and beliefs connected with this method to ensure that neither the observer nor those around him or her would be left entirely unprepared for the challenges of the approaching crisis. Unfulfilled omens. Now, if the dying person is not identified, the observer should pay special attention to the environment and lament anyone the omen could indicate. Should the observer not be able to identify anyone at all, the omen was forgotten. Should an omen remain unfulfilled, the observer did not consider it a failure of the functioning of the system. In the state of being warned, the observer recalls all of the basic beliefs and behavior instructions of peasant attitudes toward death, the above-mentioned action strategies, the belief in resurrection of heaven or healing theories that help to prevent the occurrence of death or conduce to survive the event with the smallest possible shock. In this way, a background of worries triggering the observation of the omen or activated by the observation is brought to the surface in a culturally regulated frame and may be kept partially under cultural control. Omens appearing immediately prior to death In traditional accounts, members of peasant communities are far more likely to observe omens pretending death, especially in the form of negative dreams, if they have been tending a seriously ill or dying relative. In this period, anticipation of death may manifest in the dream work, which makes possible the activation of the realization function. If the European peasant community's predictions based upon dreams would always have been considered an accepted legitimate method of gaining knowledge of reality. The world of dreams is outside the observer. It is interpreted as an authentic and objective system of prophecy. Thus, dreams were widely accepted form of knowledge. They're particularly suitable for transforming negative foreboding into a realization of the inevitability of the impending death. 
they foretell and realize the fact of death of the ill relative in the form of a confirming feedback. Traditional explanations about omens that appear immediately before death may contain estimates of the anticipated length of the expected interval before the onset of death. It's a common belief, for example, that the strange behavior of animals only briefly precedes the onset of death, 24 hours at most. The last phase of dying is marked by the deathbed visions. Many authors have written about this, such as Kastenbaum, Parks, Rosenblatt, Walsh, Jackson, and Zaleski, in which the deceased relatives of the ill person appear, and here she talks to them aloud, tussles with them. The arrival of deceased relatives is signaled by such events as the door of a dying person's room opening by itself or by a mirror falling from the wall. The family standing around the deathbed interprets this phenomenon of visitation by the dead as if the deceased were waiting for the dying person, calling him or her to them, and that after the person's departure from this life, it is they who will lead the way to the other world. The significance of the rationalizing function I just described is through the appropriate time coordinates built upon traditional experience, death omens play a significant part in distinguishing the stages of the dying process. In this sphere of activity, at least two advantageous effects are worth mentioning. The first is that these time coordinates mark the events leading up to death as a gradual process and are thus able to alleviate the elemental feeling of anxiety connected with the unpredictability of the exact time of death. Second, these temporal reference points may help the relatives carry out duties properly because their observation has an activating function. They urge and warn the observers to fulfill their tasks accompanying the final stages of death, such as calling for a priest to perform the last rites. In this way, the omens immediately preceding death have a preparatory role as well. They inform the immediate environment of the dying person of the approaching death, and they prompt the family to start accustoming themselves to the situation and to concentrate their spiritual energy. The survival of portents appearing immediately prior to death is primarily due to the fact that they are able to provide approximate points of reference and time coordinates in cases where official Christian guidance regarding the crisis period left people without counsel, or the guidance provided tending to be generalized and impersonal. In other words, these omens essentially filled in the blank areas of Christian interpretations of the death process. So in conclusion, while all omens preceding death are considered to be elements of rites of separation, according to Gennep in 1960 and Littlewood in 1993, retrospective meaning attribution incorporates rites that help to humanize and rationalize the preserved impressions of dying and death. It also fosters the development of a new relationship between the surviving kin and the departed individual by transforming their relationship into an inner representation based on memory, meaning, and emotional connection. This was described by Romanoff at Terenzio in 1998. It may also facilitate the mourner's early reintegration reintegration into the wider community, into the traditional order of peasant life, and help to strengthen their faith in its essential principles and values. This article was from deathreference.com slash nu dash pu slash omens. I'll put the link in the show notes. I thought this was a really good article to explain death omens. And as you know, death omens were the central influence of the film Final Destination. Let's move on to death The reality of death has had a substantial influence on the human psyche and the development of civilization as a whole. This universal significance is explored in every horror film and is really the basis for the entire genre. So let's look at the history of the personification of death. One of the earliest known depictions of a personified death was found at Cattle Hayek, a Neolithic settlement in Anatolia dating from the 7th millennium BC. 
Death takes the form represented by gigantic black birds of vulture-like appearance, menacing headless human corpses. Many Stone Age cave paintings depict death as a winged being, tall and extremely thin and pale in complexion. In these earliest renditions, death was not given a name, simply an image, that to the people of the day was representative of a major force or deity. Something much larger than life could never be appeased, no matter how many sacrifices were given unto it. The assigning of titles and names and even personality came much later as the world grew larger and more diverse in the eyes of man. When humankind literally separated himself from the animal kingdom and began to think about the meaning of life, while always having to recognize the inevitability of death. The gods of death are Seth in the Egyptian culture, Namtar, Mesopotamian, Kali in Hindu, Anpau in Celtic, Marzana in Slavic, Kalma in Finnish, and Sagbada in African. It was believed that the soul escapes the body through the mouth or throat, and this is often depicted as a way of telling someone has died in films. As far as personifications, Personification of death is usually a living, sentient entity and a concept that's existed in many societies since before recorded time. But in Western cultures, death is known as the Grim Reaper. It's shown a skeletal figure carrying a large Sith and wearing a midnight black gown with a hood, sometimes in a white burial shroud. And this warning sign is typically known as the Grim. And now the concept of cheating death has been seen in many films, such as The Ferryman, which is supposed to be released in 2007, the Final Destination series, which will be discussed later in this podcast, The Man Who Cheated Death from 1959, and Pet Cemetery from 1989. In my research, I have not found any cultural reasons for the description of cheating death or using that as a plot device. It seems to be something made up for films. So let's talk about premonitions. Let's discuss premonitions. Premonition is a type of prophecy consisting of an impressionable warning of a future event. The phenomenon is characterized by such sensations as anxiety, uneasiness, a vague feeling of disquiet, suggesting impending disaster to actual visual or auditory hallucinations. Premonition is sometimes referred to as a gut-level feeling. The sensation tends to occur prior to disasters, accidents, deaths, and other traumatic and emotionally charged events. The sensation of premonition may be considered precognition at times because there is no clear-cut line between them. However, generally, premonitions are sense-oriented, dominated by a syndrome of physical uneasiness, depression, or distress that is without discernible source or reason. It's an unexplainable feeling that something is going to happen. Precognition, on the other hand, is more precise, involving visions or dreams of the event that is to occur in the future. For some investigators, premonitions can include actions of patients and individuals in magnetic and mediumistic trances who prophesize that their malady or other terrible event to them will occur within a certain period of time and may subconsciously wish to fulfill that prophecy and may be questioned whether the similar phenomena might occur in a vertical dream or hallucination. This is theorized on the conclusion that a post-hypnotic person generally weaves his action into the surrounding circumstances even though the very moment of its performance may have been fixed months before. Therefore, this raises the possibilities that fulfillment of dreams and hallucinations might be suggested through telepathic communication to a person from another agent, which may not be far-fetched or impossible. Another consideration is coincidence. The dream or hallucination of an event could possibly coincide with the incident. 
Also, it's possible that impressions, whether they remain vague forebodings or are embedded in dreams, must at times be subconscious interferences drawn from an actual, if obscured, perception of existing facts. Such premonitions are by no means to be disregarded. However, frequently premonitions, no matter how impressive, prove to be absolutely groundless where a ghostly visitant issues the warning. On October 26, 1966, 28 adults and 116 children were killed when the landslide of coal waste tumbled down a mountain in Aberfan, Wales, and buried a school. According to three surveys taken afterwards, up to two weeks before the disaster, about 200 people experienced both premonitions and precognitions. The premonitions included depression, a feeling that something bad was going to happen. Some people accurately pinpointed the day. Sensations of choking and gasping for breath, uneasiness, and impressions of coal dust billowing black clouds, and children running and screaming. Premonitions occurring in a waking state are more predominant than those that occur in dreams because in the latter they are frequently disguised as symbols and tend to go unnoticed. However, when these symbols reappear frequently in dreams, the individual may learn to distinguish the symbols or emotional tones. Premonitions can give early intuitive warnings that occur frequently but are too subtle to register on the conscious mind. Some of these intuitive warnings apparently register on the subconscious and cause the person to unknowingly alter his plans, which some evidence indicates. The similar or same factor may relate to doomed ships. The Titanic carried only 58% of its passenger load on its disastrous maiden voyage when colliding with an iceberg in April 1912. A group of 22 stokers were late and the captain declared the ship would sail without them, a fact which may have saved their lives. The psychiatrist Ian Stevenson recorded recorded more than 19 incidences of premonitions and precognitions concerning the Titanic in England, America, Canada, and Brazil, which occurred within the two weeks prior to the ship's sailing date of April 10th. Some canceled their reservations after dreaming of the ship's doom. Others said it was bad luck to sail on the ship's maiden voyage. Some of the survivors said they felt uneasy but sailed anyway. The latter is questionable because some sensations might have been prompted by after-the-fact thought. The functioning of premonitions is not exactly known. That is, why some people possess them while others do not. One theory is that some people are more open or prone to psychic suggestion. A cause for the diminishing of this psychic ability in people is that a larger proportion of the population has become less intuitive. With the advancement of the scientific age, people have become to rely less on their sensations. It's just in recent years that science is investigating the importance of human intuition and sensation. This article is from themystica.com. And now something a little bizarre. News channels all over the country could not stop talking about Oscar the Cat. From CNN.com, July 30th, 2007. In Providence, Rhode Island, Oscar the Cat seems to have an uncanny knack for predicting when nursing home patients are going to die. He curls up next to them during their final hours. And his accuracy observed in 25 cases, has led the staff to call family members once he has chosen someone. It usually means the patient has less than four hours to live. Dr. David Dosa said in an interview that he doesn't make too many mistakes. He seems to understand when patients are about to die. And Dr. Dosa describes the phenomenon in a poignant essay in an issue of the New York, I'm sorry, New England Journal of Medicine, which is a very highly regarded journal. He says that many family members take solace from it. They appreciate the companionship that the cat provides for their dying loved one. It's interesting, the fact that a cat in a nursing home 
who doesn't seem to belong to anybody will curl up right next to a person as they're about to die or within four hours and that his accuracy is nearly impeccable. Now let's move on to our discussion of films which discuss these issues. The first being Final Destination from 2000, with sequels in 2003 and 2005. See, here's a brief synopsis. Alex and a group of high school students take a flight to Paris for a French class trip. Before they set off, Alex has a premonition of the plane bursting into flames minutes after takeoff. He tells everyone to get off the ill-fated aircraft. Moments later, in the departure lounge, the students see the plane explode before their very eyes. Now the FBI agent thinks that Alex has something to do with it and follows his every move. His friends start to believe he had something to do with it also and slowly fade out of his life. But now, each one of his friends is mysteriously being killed off by death itself. Alex is now trying to find out who is next in Death's List, but unfortunately, you can't cheat death. The film is pretty straightforward, but it really caught my attention when it was released in 2000 for several reasons. One, you never see death. It's kind of a spooky sort of, you know, you feel like it's watching you and that something is going to happen and you see the omens, but you don't ever see an incarnation of death, which I think made the film a little bit scarier. The second reason is because it had a great plot. It was exciting. It had interesting death scenes. I saw this film on spring break while in San Diego, and the theater was full of teens and 20-somethings. The patrons were actually shouting, screaming, and jumping in their seats. It was as if the theater was all moving in unison. It was a really great crowd reaction, and rarely do I see this happen in a film. Even my friends who do not like horror like this film. The same cannot be said for the sequels, however. The third reason is that it was helped along the reemergence of the teen horror films, which has started with Scream in 1996. And I'd put this film somewhat above average for a horror film. Dessen Thompson from the Washington Post said this of the film. He said, it is an interesting combination of well-mounted horror flick and sheer campy experience. Andrew Manning from Radio Free Entertainment called the film a grossly underrated horror film with an intriguing premise and foreboding atmosphere. And Mick LaSalle from the San Francisco Chronicle called it playful and energized enough to keep the audience guessing. However, many critics panned the film for its gore and lack of ingenuity. For example, Stephen Rosen from the Denver Post said, Good films see through those fears and anxieties like wise psychologists. The rest of us just see dollar signs. And Todd Anthony of the South Florida Sun Sentinel said in his review that devoid of logic, suspense, humor, credible characters, or even a whiff of imagination, Final Destination deserves an untimely demise of its own. Overall, the consensus seems to be that the premise is very interesting, but it was not executed properly and that the acting is not very good. I would have to agree, although I thought it was a really fun ride and had some good death scenes, like I said. The first film is vastly superior to the sequels. Number two is just a rework of the first film with different characters, and I couldn't even sit through the third film. If you've not seen it, I would recommend it, although don't take it seriously because it's very tongue-in-cheek. And here are some little tidbits about the film. It won a Saturn Award for Best Horror Film, the original anyhow. It was based on an unused X-Files script. The film was directed by James Wong, a second-time film director who worked on the X-Files. Many of the characters have names that derive from actors and directors of classic horror films. In the bus scene, right when Carter and Terry arrive in Carter's car, the track Into the Void by Nine Inch Nails is playing on the radio and the words Final Destination can be heard in the lyrics. The song Rocky Mountain High by John Denver is playing throughout the first movie, always before someone dies. 
Fittingly, John Denver himself was killed in a plane crash in 1997. This concept was used again for Final Destination 3 when the song Turn Around, Look at Me was playing before many of the deaths. The crash of Flight 180 has a great many similarities with another plane crash, TWA Flight 800. Both planes were 747s, both were flying from JFK to Charles de Gaulle, and both exploded right after takeoff due to electrical equipment shorting circuiting. Among the passengers of Flight 800 were a group of students from Montoursville, Pennsylvania, going on a class trip to France, just like Alex and his classmates in the first film. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 30% with an even lower rating for the cream of the crop. And I think a lot of the critics didn't think it was something unusual, but I thought the concept of cheating death and all of these interesting concepts really played out quite well. It was just the execution and maybe the script that needed some work. On numbers, it had a budget of $23 million. Opening weekend, it made $10 million, and it grossed $53 million in the U.S. box office and another $33 million in U.S. rentals. Let's move on to a film, Premonition, from 2007. Now, I have to say, I thought the premise of this film looked really interesting, much as I did with Final Destination. I am a big fan of Sandra Bullock and was looking forward to, work to you know, seeing this film. I heard the critics were panning it, but I opted to watch it anyway as soon as it came out on DVD. With that said, it was a letdown, to put it lightly. It could have been so much more. Let me go over the synopsis. Sandy's character, Linda Hansen, is informed by the police that her husband, Jim, played by Julian McMahon, another favorite actor of mine, has died in a car accident. However, when she wakes up the next day, she finds that Jim is not dead. In fact, no one in her family seems to know anything about Jim's death. When she awakes the day after that, Jim is dead once again, and it's the day of his funeral. It is here that the concept of the time-twisting is introduced. Instead of the days running Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, etc., they run something like Thursday, Monday, Saturday, etc. Linda searches for omens in order to figure out what's happening and ultimately how to save her husband's life. Choices she makes one day change what happens in the future. It's this method that Linda learns to tweak a little bit here and there in an attempt to save Jim's fate. However, the characters are not executed well, and the relationship between Jim and Linda is not developed enough for you to really feel for them. Except an unnecessary twist with infidelity as the reason for their seemingly unhappy relationship, really, Sandy just walks through the motions of playing Linda, although the setup is well done, and for the first third of the film, I found myself connecting with her loss. Not to mention the fact that we just rarely see Jim during the course of the film. He just kind of shows up and stands there. But the film gets bogged down with more unnecessary plot devices, like her daughter's face injury and the dead bird. The film floundered all over the place until you had a final, you know, messy and extremely confusing end. Unfortunately, every clue, omen, and premonition given during the film could not have predicted the ending. I see a lot of horror films, and I love thrillers. They're really, I think, more interesting than horror films to me in a lot of ways. The idea of the time twisting and, you know, the fact that she might be able to save her husband's death, I thought that that premise was really interesting. But then I started to watch it, and I'm pretty good at predicting endings, and I love the fact, you know, like mystery films that give you a clue here and there, and that the audience can try to figure out what's happening as it goes along. And sometimes you can predict the end, sometimes you can't. In this case, you had to have been a psychic to figure out. It was it was just apples and oranges. Nothing made sense. The film would have been much more rewarding if she had been able to save Jim, or at least had made more sense. 
So let's talk about this mess of a film just a little bit more. The primary theme of the film is one of predestination or determinism for the main character. Although Linda experiences the days out of order, the events of each are apparently already determined, whether she has actually experienced them or not. Without consciously attempting to do so, Linda fulfills the necessary preconditions for later days by taking certain actions during earlier days. For example, on Saturday, Linda searches the phone book attempting to find the phone number for a previously unknown doctor on the pill bottle she discovers in her bathroom. However, she finds that the page has been torn out and discarded. On Tuesday, which she experiences later despite it taking place chronologically earlier, she finds herself tearing the page out and throwing it away, ensuring that it will later be missing when she looks for it. Unlike in films such as The Butterfly Effect, Linda is unable to radically reshape the future. Instead, she's suggested by a priest who she consults during the film. It is only her interpretation and how she chooses to deal with the events which can change. It could be implied that the film is told from a Calvinist viewpoint, as demonstrated by a human's inability to change the future, which implies only an apparent human free will. Now, there are two timelines in the movie. The first is the time that preceded Thursday, and the second is one that initiated on Monday. Waking up on Thursday morning, Linda's completely lucid, aware of what day it is, and expects Jim later in the day. Bridget hasn't run into the window yet, and it's not broken. She also doesn't know the sheriff. All the other days the movie portrays are mutually consistent. She hangs the sheets on Monday and falls on a crow that dies on Sunday, which she throws away and finds in the garbage on Tuesday. As a consequence of the rain on Tuesday, Bridget gets hurt and running in to retrieve the sheets hung on Monday. Initially, the days leading up to the accident occur in consecutive order with the premonition days occurring out of order. This would explain apparent discrepancies in the future, such as Bridget not having facial injuries on surgery on Thursday after her accident on Tuesday. However, the movie flashes back to a previous Sunday and fails to adhere to this logic. A pragmatic view of this movie is one of fidelity. This film teaches us... Those who are thinking about being unfaithful in a relationship need to assess the damage they will cause after the deed is done. Tied to this idea is one that should tell and show those they love that they love them. One never knows what the love we show our partner might be just what is needed to keep them faithful. The film received negative reviews from almost everybody, including an 8% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Interestingly, the cream of the crop viewed it somewhat more favorably at 14%. But even with the weak reviews to date, several critics, including Rex Reed, have commended Sandra Bullock for her performance. I think she is the one thing that kept the film together and made it watchable as much as it was. On numbers, the film debuted at number three with an opening weekend of $17.5 million, And as of April 29, 2007, the film grossed nearly 45, I'm sorry, $48 million domestically. It has been on DVD for a while, but I couldn't find numbers for rentals. So... It didn't do very well. I think what happened was word of mouth got out and immediately people decided to change their mind and not see it. So let's move on to my favorite of the three movies, Stir of Echoes from 1999. The tagline is, in every mind there is a door that has never been opened. Stir of Echoes is a supernatural thriller which was released in 1999 starring Kevin Bacon and directed by David Kep. Kep won the grand prize at the 2000 Gerard Mert Film Festival, and the film was named Best Movie by the International Horror Guild. The film is loosely based on the novel of the same name by Richard Matheson, which is long out of print. The synopsis is that Tom Witzke has a very ordinary life. He works at a blue-collar job, he has a loving wife named Maggie, and a young son named Jake. One evening, he goes to a neighborhood party, and the guests start talking about hypnosis. 
Tom is skeptical and doesn't believe it works. His sister-in-law, Lisa, is practically a licensed hypnotherapist, and he challenges her to hypnotize him, which she does. When he comes out of the trance, everyone is shocked. They tell him that he relived a traumatic childhood memory and that Lisa stuck a safety pin into his hand and told him to bleed on one side, but not the other, and he actually did. But Tom has absolutely no memory of this. Later that night, he starts having visions of someone being attacked and then sees a ghostly young girl in his living room. His visions become more frequent and intense, and he becomes desperate to find out what they mean. He learns that the girl in his visions is Samantha Kozak and that she disappeared from his neighborhood six months ago. He is determined to find out what happened to her, but his obsession strains his relationship with Maggie and threatens his sanity. Furthermore, there are people in his neighborhood who are willing to take drastic measures to prevent Tom from learning the truth. So let's discuss further. He was hypnotized by his sister-in-law at a party, and he became transformed. The dialogue was, his switch is thrown. And he is granted entry into a world already peripherally glimpsed by his son, who we see in the opening scenes talking ambiguously either to the audience or to an invisible presence. This later role is reminiscent of the young star in The Sixth Sense. Perhaps coincidental, perhaps not. Bacon's character becomes compelled to uncover the nature of his haunting and is as crazed and obsessed as Richard Dreyfuss's character in Close Encounters of a Third Kind, such that he threatens both his marriage and several community friendships. His attractive wife is puzzled, frustrated, and eventually estranged by his massive personality change. Now, the based-on concept in this film is a critical attributive phase, and the plot elements of the book are substantially different from the movie. Even though the scene is not in the novel, the meeting of the Chicago policeman with Bacon's son, there's a clear allusion to some of the characters and a theme from The Shining. Perhaps appropriate since Stephen King credits Richard Matheson as being a pivotal authorial influence. The one of the elements common in both plots, unexplained in the novel, is actually justified much better in the movie. So overall, few films stay with me this many years for no reason. Bacon's performance is excellent as a man struggling with something he does not understand and cannot control And as the film progresses, his visions come to pass, and he finds himself entwined in a murder mystery. He is no longer ordinary as he once believed. Granted, The Sixth Sense, which was released a little over a month before this film, is superior to this film in many ways, but it is really not fair to compare the two in terms of storyline and content. Don't get me wrong, there are many gaps in the storyline in this film, but none seriously damage the film. I'm just nitpicky when it comes to thrillers. They never explain the son's sixth sense or Tom's sudden obsession with orange juice. I believe that Tom always had the psychic ability, but he was just not open to the supernatural and thus was not a receiver until the hypnosis, which opened his mind. As I've said before, children are open to the supernatural, and by the time we reach our young adult years, the beliefs that have been suppressed by our cultural beliefs and adults telling us to grow up and stop believing in ghosts, monsters under a bed, all that fun stuff. You know, and this story explores that idea that an adult can actually reverse his thinking. And a what-if story is well done. I think that this film, if you haven't seen it, you should go out and see it. Granted, like I said, there are some plot holes, but I think with Bacon's character and the murder mystery and how it all plays out, and that you get glimpses, you get these little omens or... I don't know if they were premonitions that were given to him by the dead girl or if it was something that was actually, he was psychically connected. They don't necessarily explain all of that, but they don't need to. It's really well done. And Bacon's performance was so good. I I love him in almost everything, especially like Mystic River. But 
This performance was great. And the critics agree. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 71%. And Rod Dreyer from the New York Post says, Stir of Echoes is studded with potent fright scenes and built on a rock-solid performance by the ever-dependable Kevin Bacon. Now, as far as numbers, it had a budget of about $12 million. It opened at $5.8 million in the U.S., and grossed about $21 million in the box office in the U.S. I don't have the rental numbers. I couldn't find those. Let's discuss briefly some other films. The use of omens and premonitions has been utilized in numerous films and is a common plot device to advance the story in a way that can be time efficient and builds mystery and suspense when it's well done. Often a person has a feeling about something, a vision, or interprets a superstition to mean a foreboding or warning. Few films focus on the use of premonitions, omens, and the like as a significant means of furthering the plot rather than just placing subtle omens and premonitions in a film to enhance the other plot points. But keep your eyes open for the use of these devices, and you may be surprised how often they're used both in horror and other genres. So that's the end of the main discussion. The song of the night tonight is Down in Flames by Superbean from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Enjoy! this episode dear listeners the next episode will cover halloween and witches which should be out by the end of this month for halloween 
The next episode after that, we'll discuss the concept of a building having a conscious will or soul, as it were. It's an idea explored in Stephen King's The Shining, Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher, and Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. This should be an exciting episode, so stay tuned and take care. Thank you for listening to Darkgate Horror Podcast. You can send me an email at darkgatehorror at gmail.com and visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com. Thank you to Josh Woodward for the use of his song, I Want to Destroy Something Beautiful, which is the opening and closing music. His website is joshwoodward.com. Music played on this podcast is from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.